Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you here on Palm Sunday. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Blake Jenkins. I serve here as our minister to college students, and I'm honored uh, to come and preach this morning at Pastor David's invitation. There is nothing quite like a grand entrance to be able to make a lasting impression. There's nothing like it. Nothing like a grand entrance to be able to make a lasting impression. Uh, We see this sometimes in the sports that we uh, like to watch. We see this in the movies we like to watch. I have a four-year-old son. My wife and I are really enjoying, like, introducing him slowly to the things that we loved when we were kids, movies, TV shows, games. And one of those movies that he's seen recently been introduced to was Aladdin. And we got to watch Aladdin together, right? And so Aladdin, who comes into Agrabah and who is wanting to project this image of someone who is royal, someone who is wealthy, someone who's put together, you know, Prince Ali, mighty is he, you know, all these other things coming in. Thomas just loves it. It dances, goes crazy with that song. Or we see it like in the sports teams that we enjoy, right? Like right before the team's coming out of the tunnel, coming through the gate, the lights go dark, the music starts to pulse, the boom-inducing videos come up on the LEDs, and then we are just drawn in, emotionally charged, and we are ready to be able to watch what's about to happen. Or we see it like at a wedding, right? Like if you just pictured a bride in a stark white dress, back there as the doors open, the tune changes, everyone stands, orients their posture towards her as she walks down the aisle. The groom will never forget that. There's something about a grand entrance that makes a lasting impression. And it was no different in the life of Jesus. That Jesus, he had been doing public ministry for about three years, going through the countryside, teaching, healing, talking about this thing called the kingdom of God, and then even raising someone from the dead. That there were times where people wanted to take him. He had some king-like qualities, and they wanted by force to make him king. We see it in John chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000. That's a good kingly move. Bread and fish for everyone to eat. And it says there, at the end of John 6, that the crowd came and wanted to take him by force to make him king, but Jesus withdrew. Why? Because his time had not yet come. But we fast forward to John chapter 12. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and his time has come. We pick up in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, if you'll follow along with me. Jesus is about to make a grand entrance that leaves a lasting impression. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming out to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. People were packing the streets of Jerusalem. The infrastructure couldn't handle the swelling crowds that were coming in. It was time for Passover, that great pilgrimage festival, when everybody would be coming back in. Lots of crowds. And undoubtedly, the message that was circulating through was the day before Jesus in John chapter 11 had resurrected a man, his friend named Lazarus. And people at the end of the crowds at the end of John chapter 11 are asking in verse 56, so do you think he's going to come? Do you think he's going to be able to make it to the feast? Well, then they get confirmation. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And so the crowd, they see this as their chance. Their, their chance to be able to make him king. Their chance to be able to say who he is. Their chance to get exactly what they want. Freedom from their Roman overlords. 
You see, we know this because of two things. What they wave and what they say. When the crowds hear that Jesus is coming, they go out and they get palm branches. And if we ever stop to slow down sometimes and ask like, why? Why do we wave palm branches? Why did they wave palm branches? Well, see, there was no Old Testament precedent for the use of palm branches when it came to Passover. There was a mention of palm branches being used at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, as you might have heard it referred to before, but nothing about it associated with the Passover, so that's not it. But there was some then historical precedent for the use of palm branches. You see, it was in the time between the Testaments, around the 160s B.C., that there was this empire called the Seleucid Empire that had come in, had captured Jerusalem, taken over, desecrated the temple. And there was this family, the Maccabees, that had come in, that they eventually were able to expel them from the temple and then to get them out of Jerusalem. And people were celebrating. This foreign occupant, this foreign ruler had now been cast out of God's land and from God's people. And so how do they celebrate? With a parade, lots of fanfare, with music and the waving of palm branches. It had become a symbol for military victory, for the little guy, the underdog, overthrowing the foreign ruler. We see this not just like in that then historical precedent, we see it a little bit later in AD 60, when the Israelites were trying to get out of under Roman occupation, that they had minted their own coins as an act of defiance to Rome. And what else would be minted on the coins other than a palm branch. It was a symbol of victory, military might. It's in what they wave, but not just in what they wave, but it's in what they say. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. The Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is the one who has come to save us. That's a direct quotation, but the addition that they make at the end is not original to Psalm 118. Even the king of Israel, that they, in what they waved and what they said, when drawn together, it's led certain Bible scholars to say that they have wrapped up in their waving of palm branches and in their declaration of save us, nationalistic hopes of being delivered from political oppression. And so as they're coming in, They had pressing needs that they wanted Jesus to deal with. They had an idea of who the Messiah was and what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. It wasn't when he fed the 5,000, but it was going to be happening here. This is our chance, our opportunity. And it makes what Jesus does next, if you don't know the story, all the more baffling. Because what does it say that Jesus does? Well, it says in the midst of packed, charged, chaotic Jerusalem with people shouting and crying, Hosanna, He comes in on a donkey. We pick up in verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Right here, what do we make of this? That Jesus, though he's silent in this narrative, He is about to say something. He is about to enact something that was instructive for the crowds right there. 
for the Roman rulers that were looking on, for the Jewish religious leaders, and then even for us today. He's about to do something that is going to cast light on the rest of Holy Week and everything that is about to come after. He is about to show us he is the king who is in control, whose ways are good. He is the king who's in control, whose ways are good. He is the king. He's affirming part of what the crowd is saying, that yes, he is a king. And this is shown partly in his choice of transportation and the donkey. It maybe wasn't what the crowds would have wanted, but it was what Jesus was fulfilling. You see, the donkey, it doesn't have a lot of our modern connotations associated with it, like, you know, just kind of common, lowly, beast of burden, all this other kind of stuff. But there's actually some Old Testament precedent for it being royal transport that we see in the Old Testament. First Kings 1, King David, as he is organizing and orchestrating everything for his son's anointing for king, Solomon. Three times in First Kings 1, he says, make sure you put Solomon on my own donkey. We see it, First Kings 1.33. And the king said to them, take with you servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. That you see right here, New Testament scholar and pastor Edward Clink, he's, he has helped me a lot in reflecting on the historic, historical significance of this. He says this, Zion's king, who is now understood to be Jesus, comes not on the usual royal means of transportation associated with military conquest but on a purebred male donkey, which is the royal mount associated with peace rather than elitism and conquest. That is, Jesus comes as a king, but of a very different sort than what the crowds expected. You see, the crowd was only partly right. He was a king, but he was a king of a different sort. He wasn't to bring military conquest with an army behind it, but he was coming to bring peace and dealing with the sin before all of God's people. The crowd with their palm branches and cries for salvation from the Romans, they would have wanted Jesus on a war horse trotting into Jerusalem. But you see, it's instructive for us to be able to see that Jesus is more concerned with fulfilling his word than our expectations. Jesus is more concerned with fulfilling his word than our expectations, than when what we think that he should do in any given situation. He is not at the mercy of the crowd, but he has come that he might show the crowd's mercy. He will not fit into the crowd's mold, but rather he has come to break the mold of sin, which seeks to constrain and form all of God's people. That Jesus right here, he is the king who's in control. We don't see it as much in John 12, but we see it in other accounts of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Holy Week. This is one of the few instances in Jesus' life that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when we look at some of the parallel accounts, we're able to see the great lengths to which Jesus went to to ensure that he would come in on a donkey. You know, I, I sometimes picture it like that, oh, in, based on this, Jesus is coming in, the crowds, they're starting to make this a big deal. And he's like, well, I can't just walk through. I've got to get up on something. Gosh, what will it be? Um, okay, there's a donkey, not what I would have picked, but you know, it'll make do. And so I'm going to come over here and get on it and go. But that's not what happens. That we see, even before this happens, Jesus sends disciples on. 
Go, you're going to find this donkey tied up. Take it. If anybody asks, say it's because the Lord has need of it. Bring it back to me. This is what I'll ride. That Jesus, he is in control of this situation. He is orchestrating the events as he begins Holy Week. He is showing that he's in control, but not only in the fact that there is a donkey there, but there are other parallel accounts that would say that this was to be an unbroken donkey, a donkey that had never been ridden. And you know, it seems just kind of like a throwaway detail, but when we really stop to think about it, it's a miracle in and of itself. You don't have to have grown up on a ranch or a farm or lived in an agrarian society to know that you don't ride an animal that has never been ridden before, Right? Like if you were to go to the Grand Canyon, you were going to take one of those guided tours where you ride on the back of a donkey as you get ready to go down into the basin. And you're like, oh, you'd come up to the tour guide and he says, the tour's filled up. Like there's really only this one donkey left. His name's Bucky. And uh, like he's just, he's never been ridden before. And you're not like, sign me up, right? You're just, no, you don't ride on the back of an animal that has never been ridden before. But you, you don't do it like when there is something that's going to be calm, serene, not a lot other going on. But Jesus is going to be riding this animal through packed, chaotic, loud, sensory overload Jerusalem. And when we see this, the way that Jesus controlled it, I can see why D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, he would reflect on this passage and say, In the midst, then, of this excited crowd, an unbroken, a young donkey remains completely calm. Why? Because he's under the hands of the the one who calmed the winds and the waves. That right here, we see the peace of the coming kingdom. In the macro and in the micro, on the large scale and on the small scale, Jesus is the king who is in control. But it's not just that. Because there have been kings who've been in control. There are queens that have been in power. It's not just enough to have power. There have been a lot of women and men through history that have had tremendous power, and it has ended very poorly. It is not enough for us to be able to have a king who's in control, but we have a king who's in control and whose ways are good. We see this in his fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, Verses 10 and 11, if we go back and if we read what it is that Jesus is fulfilling, look at the goodness of God all through this passage. Rejoice greatly, O daughter daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9 through 11. He is good. He is righteous. He is noble, good, blameless, honorable. He has salvation in his hands and he is giving it generously. He's humble, he's gentle, he's lowly. He's meeting people where they're at. He's cutting off instruments and mechanisms of war, breaking them over his knee. His rule will cover all of the earth and he will bring freedom 
through the blood of the covenant. He is communicating this to his disciples, to the crowds, to the Roman rulers, to the Jewish religious leaders. And he's communicating it to us today. He is the king who's in control, whose ways are good. It's not what the crowd would have drawn up, but it was what the crowd truly needed. He's making a lasting impression because you see the crowd, they wanted a king for Israel, but Jesus was the king of the whole world. The crowd wanted him to bring deliverance from the Romans, but Jesus was coming to bring deliverance from sin. The crowd wanted a man of action, but Jesus was the God-man coming to enact salvation. The crowd had pressing needs, but Jesus came to deal with their most oppressing need. And we all can be like the crowds. If we're apart from Jesus, maybe we're just coming to look to him to do things for us. Maybe there was a death, a divorce, a diagnosis. We don't know what to do in that moment. We've exhausted all other options. We've explored every other avenue. And so we've heard that God can do things in the lives of people. And so we come. And we're not waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna, but maybe we're asking God, save me from this situation. God, save me from this situation pressing need. Maybe it's the people that are in power that you didn't want there. Maybe it was the family situation and the brokenness, and we are saying, God, save us from this. Maybe there was something that popped up on the scan. Maybe there was something over here that has been dividing your family. And we come out of relationship with the Lord, thinking that he can do things for us. And we're waving palm branches and we're saying, save us from this, save us from this. And Jesus would say, I I can do those things. But what do you do with your guilt and your shame? What do you do with that nagging emptiness inside, that incessant need to prove yourself? What do you do with that spiritual nakedness, that restlessness of soul, that slavery to sin and self? That's that's what I've come to deal with. Trust me. Follow me. And it's at that point when we come to God, not looking for stuff, but for him, that's when we can bring our needs before him. Where the word says we can cast our cares on him because he cares for us. But we're coming to God not to get things. We're coming to God to get God. And when we come, we see that he is the king who's in control, whose ways are good. And we say, I'm not the king. But sometimes we like to think we are. That I am the king. And I'm looking for him to cede control to me. I know how to fix this. And my ways are good in my own eyes. But Jesus isn't content to leave the crowds there, and he's not content to leave us there either. This is a grand entrance that creates a lasting impression, and it is going to shed light on everything that comes after in this Holy Week. This grand entrance is significant for Holy Week. We see it on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus 
is washing the disciples' feet, when he is instituting the Lord's Supper, when he is being actively betrayed by those in his inner circle and being denied by those who swore they wouldn't. It might seem in those moments that everything is out of control, everything is chaos, that everything that Jesus had set up until this point was not true. But we know that he is the king who's in control, whose ways are good. We see it on Good Friday as he is, he is bounced around from political ruler to political ruler. As he is stripped naked, beaten, mocked, called the king, but out of derision and, de- but, and not out of devotion. That as he is over here and everything, as he is nailed to the cross, that truly we see that he is the king who is in control, whose ways are good. And him being enthroned, it's not on a throne of gold, but it is on a Roman cross. And then on Easter morning, when he raises again from the dead, when his buried body began to breathe, we see that he has defeated sin, devil, and death. He is the king who is in control, whose ways are good that this event, it sheds light on everything that's going to come after. And it helps to make this episode make even more sense. We see that in verse 16 with his disciples. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Jesus was doing some puzzling things to them. But when Jesus was glorified, that is after he was crucified, buried, and resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. There's nothing like a grand entrance to create a lasting impression. And Jesus is letting the crowds, he is letting the rulers, and he is letting you, as you walk through Holy Week this week, know who you're dealing with. He is the king who's in control, whose ways are good. It's significant for Holy Week, but not only for Holy Week, but it is significant for your every week. I was serving at a previous church and I was doing a Wednesday night Bible study for some college students and we were privileged to have some, a large number of international students that were with us through one of the local colleges. They had some partnerships with universities over in South Korea and China and so folks were coming over here at the invitation, host homes, and they wanted to be able to practice their English. We fed them food, you know, all the typical, you know, drawing college kids things, right? And as we were going through and walking through the Psalms that summer, I was arriving at one of the Messianic Psalms, one of the songs that were just explicitly about Christ. They all are, but this one, like low-hanging fruit, you couldn't miss it. And I was camping out on the fact that Jesus is our King. I was going slow. I was trying to explain, make it understandable. And I was just praying inwardly as I was talking, like, Lord, would you say, I really want to have a conversation with one of these international students afterwards. We ended, I didn't get to have a conversation with an international student afterwards, but I got to have a conversation with Olivia. And Olivia had grown up at the church. She had gone away for school. She was back home for the summer. And she came to me with tears in her eyes and asked if we could go off to the side to talk and pray. And she said, I have known a lot about Jesus. And I have done things because it's what I've been supposed to do. But I don't know why it is coming across me today that 
He is my king. What dawned on her that day was something like, if Jesus is who he truly said he was, that if he is the king, then we are either living under his lordship or we are living under our own. We are submitting to him as sovereign or we are trusting in ourselves to be able to do that. There is no in-between. We are actively following him out of devotion and service of his kingdom or we are building our own. There is no in-between. That we will submit to his rule or we will act in rebellion. He is king. He's not a consultant. Not someone that we can just go to when things are bad or when we have a particularly tricky situation and if he were to tell us how we navigate through it and if we didn't really like it, then we could just go our own way and do our own thing or find someone else. He's not an influencer, like on Instagram or YouTube, someone that like we can follow them, we could admire them, we could want to be like them in some respects, but the second that they do something that we don't like or go a direction that we don't want to go, then we can just find someone new to follow. He's not a consultant, he's not an influencer, he is king. And for us to be able to follow him, he is the king who's in control, whose ways are good. What more could we want? That it is significant for our every week. And we know that because he is king and he is in control and his ways are good, we can trust and obey through whatever comes our way. That we can submit wholly and completely to him. It's not just significant for Holy Week. It's not just significant for your every week. It will be significant for weeks on into eternity. How do I know this? Because of a slice that we can see of what's coming in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, not just Israel, but the whole world, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Maybe what at Jesus' first coming was praise mingled with desires and expectations and hopes for what he could do for them and not out of true humble service to the king. This is completely different. For sin, the devil, and the last enemy to be destroyed, death, will be but a memory. There will be nothing intermingling with our praise that day. It will be pure, undefiled. And we will say, blessed is the one who has come and has come again. Blessed is he who has saved us and worked such a great salvation, not just for me, not just for people that look like me, but for the whole world. Grand entrances make lasting impressions. We can see here in Holy Week, he is the king who's in control, whose ways are good. And in your every week, through whatever comes your way, you can know, you can trust, you can obey because he is the king who's in control, whose ways are good. And that we can look forward in hope and expectation and faith that we will be celebrating him for all of eternity. For truly, he is the king who's in control, whose ways are good. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for not leaving us alone and in the dark, trying to figure out the problem and the solution all on our own, that you have not given us over to how we could save ourselves, but you have come, that you have intersected our lives. You have showed us the way. You've shown us the one, the one for whom every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. We thank you for Jesus. God, this week and every week, would you help us to remember that you are the king, that you are in control, and that your ways are indeed good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.